after I got that 486 online, it was acting as my firewall. ADSL was just starting up and there's no mailing list. So I used, I'm pretty sure it was Major Domo to create the New Zealand ADSL mailing list. And I installed Apache to to handle the archives and the sign up and stuff. And I was, was sitting alone in my house one night, realizing that over there on this computer is a web server that anyone in the world on the internet can access. I was thinking, holy shit, I can, I can run a web server. And it, it's just, it, it all went from that. It was just sort of, wow, that, that was the moment. With me on the show today is Dan Langill. Dan is the sysadmin at Cisco's Talos Intelligence Group. He's the organizer of BSDCAN, the man behind the FreeBSD Diary, Freshports, Fresh Source, and probably a few other sites that I've forgotten about. Dan, thanks for taking the time to come on and speak with me. Hello. Thank you. Happy to be here. So if memory serves, the first time we met was either MeetBSD in 2016 or VBSDCon in 2015. I, I forget which one it was. Um, I know you keep telling me I need to come up to BSDCAN, but I've never made it so far. Uh, hopefully one of these days I will be able to make it up there. But when I first learned of you, that was before, obviously, we had met, and it was through the FreeBSD diary. So I wanted to start there. What was your motivation to start that? Lack of knowledge. Um, I was living in Wellington, New Zealand at the time on the Toto Street in Nio, and that's within visual distance of the New Zealand Post Office Depot. And that's what they call them. And the New Zealand Post Office was rolling out ADSL at the time. And I forget who my employer was at the time, but I was a consultant and I was working at New Zealand Fisheries. And at, at lunchtime or during our breaks, we were sitting around talking about this. And it was actually Terry Hughes and Jay Montilla. We were talking about me wanting a firewall now that I had an internet connection that was on 24-7. Jay said he had just the thing. And he gave me a 486 box with a partially installed FreeBSD for me. And I went from there. And I remember the hardest part was figuring out how to get DHCP running because I knew what an IP address it was, but I didn't really understand DHCP. And so from there, I started taking notes and I was writing in a physical notebook. And when I had a problem, I would go through the notes, type up what I did, and post it to the mailing list. And that, that always helped because I was able to show people exactly what I was doing and what was going wrong and what happened. And as that proceeded, I started typing the notes directly into my laptop. Well, actually, it was a desktop, into a desktop. And then I could just copy and paste. It was much easier. But then on the questions mailing list... I would see people asking questions for things I had already done. So I had a website somewhere. I can't remember what it was. It might have been DVL software, but the co.nz at the time. And I would just copy and paste my notes on there. And I called it FreeBSD Notes. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then eventually Jordan Hubbard, I think it was Jordan Hubbard, registered freebcdiary.com for me. And I started using that and then it went to .org and that, that's how it got started. Mainly for me, keeping my own notes so that I know what I did when I asked for help. One of the things that I loved about it was you never shied away from putting down what didn't work. 
And there's there's this trend that we have in our in our industry where we always try to look like we know everything and that we always have the answer and we always know the right way to do it. When the reality is there's a lot of times when we're trying to figure it out because we haven't had exposure to it before or we haven't done it in so long. And I love the fact that you put it out there as like some of the the posts where things you were trying didn't work and you just went ahead and stated that because for those that are then coming behind you and learning, that's extraordinarily helpful to see if they get that, oh, that error message, I got that too, why is that? And then to see, okay, what's the correct way to do it? So I really appreciate that you've always been willing to, when there have been mistakes, including those, because after all, at least for myself, when I screw something up, I'm usually searching for the mistake, the error message or whatever I get. So having someone who has put that down so that I can then find the right way to do it through the error that I got from doing it the wrong way is really, really helpful. I'm glad you like that. Now, while you were saying that, it reminded me of something. It reminds me about uh, high school and, and elementary education. And people said, why do I need to learn this? What use is it going to be to me? And the biggest thing about that education is that you're learning how to solve problems. And solving problems is what you've got to do all your life. And it's not necessarily the exact subject matter that you need to learn or retain. It's the development of problem-solving skills, and that is vital for everyone to have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I talk with IT people, uh, friends in the IT field, and the one thing that we always talk about is the onslaught of new information that we constantly have to learn. And I think sometimes we we give a, ourselves a disservice just industry-wide by always focusing on or trying to focus on having knowledge off the top of our head instead of be showing that we can find the knowledge when we need it. Now, that that reminds me of one of my first summer jobs at university. I was what, what the university called a consultant. And you sat in a small office with, I'm not kidding, a binder full of manuals that was about two feet wide. And you were not supposed to know all the information in those manuals. You just had to know where to get the information when someone came to you asking about a problem. And it was the same thing as being a teaching assistant. Someone would come to you with a problem and you'd look at the printout and you would say, oh, OK, you've forgotten to do this. And they would go away amazed that you could solve the problem just in 30 seconds of looking at it. And what they don't realize is that you've already solved that exact problem five times earlier in the day for some of their um, colleagues. But yes, it's not so much knowing the answer as knowing where or how to find the answer. And that is a great skill to develop. Yeah, I think for those of us that are older, that comes a little more naturally because computers back in the day were obviously a little bit more difficult. There was a lot more challenge involved in getting things to work right. So we kind of always had that effort of trying to make things work, whether it was building an old system and not figuring out why. I know this card, add-in card is good, but it's not working, even though I know it's good, what is going on? And I think there's the newer, younger generations, unfortunately, didn't get that. I mean, that's kind of a good thing in a way. They didn't have to go through the headaches that we did. But I think they've they've missed out on some of that kind of investigative aspect mm -hmm. of trying to figure out what the actual underlying problem is, not just what the symptom that you're seeing is. Yep. I've got this computer attached to the switch with a network cable, and I'm not getting anything. 
the link's not coming up. Well, swap it for a cable that you know works from another computer that is working. Does it still not work? If it still doesn't work, it's not the cable. So it's either the switch port or the network card or somewhere in between. And yeah, just eliminating all, all the known pieces that you can swap out and swap in until you find out what's actually broken. It is, it, it's frustrating and it's difficult. Um, and I remember losing my temper all the time when I was a teenager, but that doesn't happen so often anymore. <laughs> so speaking about when you were younger, do you remember like the first time you ever used a computer or the first time when you had that experience and you thought, hey, this is something I'm really interested in? It, okay, so the first time I used a computer, I think it was... Fortran in high school with pencils and and cards, not punch cards, but you would block out the little blocks on the cards. And that that might have been grade 10. And so for hands on, it might have been around 1975 to 1977 at a local community college. It was Algonquin College on Woodruff Avenue. And I had to take a bus to get there. And it was an evening course. And I was the only high school kid in the class, I think. Now, my friend Frank Kahneman might, be, might have been in it, but I'm not sure. But it was PDP assembly language programming. And it was hands-on and it was at a terminal, um, it, literally a, a teletype terminal. But it was just fascinating and so much fun to me. Now, going after that, for owning a computer, I owned something called a Mimic 8080. And it was designed locally by a husband and wife team called Frank and Big Tate. Sorry, Frank and Bink Tate. I think of Tate Electronics, T-A-I-T. And this was through the National Computer Capital Club, National Capital Computer Club. And that, that was based in Ottawa. And they met at the National Research Council at 100 Sussex Drive. And all around, the, around us were embassies and just half a mile down the road was 24 Sussex Drive, which is the official residence of the prime minister. And I'm pretty sure I was between 15 and 16. And I, I, I think that because I remember driving there in my mom's car. And this is a big change from just a, a few years prior when I was living in a small town, Oxford, Nova Scotia, population of about 1,500 or so. And now I was in a city of, of then, I think it was 330,000 people. But just total change. But I I remember reading an elementary electronics magazine about building a computer, and it was aimed at the hobbyists. And I mentioned Frank. Frank Kahneman and I would talk about computers and make, buy magazines, and we did a day trip to Toronto by uh, Voyager bus to go and buy computer magazines. And I subscribed to Dr. Dobbs and Byte magazine and some other stuff, and I can't remember what they were. But vividly remember that electronics magazine and it was elementary electronics i remember that for sure and it was just saying this is really cool i really like this i want to i want to have more to do with this so then i assume when you went to university that you were focused on uh, computer science uh sort of um okay i was not i did not have high marks in high school so i remember my guidance counselor telling me you you won't get into computer science with these grades. So I called the Com School of Computer Science at Carleton University, which was local, 
and I said, this is what my guidance counselor has told me. And, you know, I'm, I'm devastated. I can't get into w what I wanted to do. And whatever woman I spoke to there told me, you, you can uh, join the Bachelor of Arts program and take all the exact same courses. And I was so relieved. It, it was such a relief to, to hear that. Um, I, I was also accepted to McGill, which would have led me down a totally different path. I would have moved to Montreal. And I'm sure I would have picked up French much better than what I have now, which is near zero. But I went to Carlton and that eventually led me to New Zealand. But we can come back to that later. Um, first year, I think it was either at the end of the first semester, which would, excuse me, which would have been Christmas, or it was uh, the beginning of the following summer when the School of Computer Science had a lot of dropouts and approached me and said, uh, would you like to join the School of Computer Science? Yay! Holy! So, yeah, I joined the School of Computer Science. And, yeah, uh, I know I used Unix there. Um but it was more of a user and not related to anything systems administration or programming or anything there. I remember working on an Apollo system, but I can't remember what it was. I know we used something called Mince, which is Mince is not a complete Emacs, as an editor on a system with dual 8-inch floppies. And this is around 83, 84, 85, something like that. And then after that, it wasn't until 1998 uh, that I got into using Unix, which is in FreeBSD. And that takes us back to the story at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, were you aware of open source before you started getting into using FreeBSD? Or was FreeBSD kind of your entry into learning about the open source model? I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that I didn't know about open source. I, I don't have any memories to confirm or deny that it was but I'm pretty sure that FreeBSD was the first open source stuff that I used. Do you happen to remember what about what version of FreeBSD that would have been? I think it was 2.2.7 or 2.2.8, something around there. And if we go back to the timeline, which was uh, uh, mid to late 1998, that matches up with the versions that were released then. And Jay gave me the CDs. Did you decide to stay with FreeBSD out of familiarity because you had used it? Or was there something else about FreeBSD that attracted you more than other open source operating systems that are out? I'd never used any other open source operating systems. And I'm pretty sure that to date, I've never installed Linux. I've used it uh, on other people's systems and at work and on, on uh, various jobs I've been on but I've never installed it. Um, I just kept using it because it was doing what I needed and there was no incentive to go elsewhere. I've never really been tempted or had any reason to change. So it's almost like by default, but there are there have been, I think there's been two major changes in recent years that would really not make me want to try anything else. One is is how well integrated ZFS is. Two is how good package is. Package has greatly improved over over what it was when when I was when it was in the early 2000s. Um, and Pudrier. Those three things combined, I don't see anything else anywhere that can beat that. Not at all. 
Yeah, and obviously, you know, it works is a pretty good motivator to stay using with what you're using. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know I posted on Twitter and said, I'm having this trouble with this. Well, why don't you try this? And I said, well, that's not a reason to change. Um, people often say, well, why don't you use this? Um, and there has to be a very compelling reason to change horses, a really compelling reason. And it, it has to meet some unmet need as opposed to just getting around or doing something differently. Uh, I can think of, of three changes I've done in software over the years. I started off with IPFW. I moved to IP filter because, so yeah, to IP filter because of some issue. I think it was reinjection or injecting. It, it was some technical thing. And then I moved from IP filter to PF, and they were all for technical reasons or ease of use. It it wasn't because it had any. It wasn't because of ideological or anything else. It was just this will do what I need. Same reason I changed from screen. Same, the same reason I changed from screen to Tmux is I I I kept getting annoyed annoyed by Control A Control D, which would sometimes take me out of the app. So. Yeah, and the one thing that I always find interesting is when people are, you know, trying to be helpful and making those suggestions of, oh, well, why don't why don't you try this or why don't you try this other thing over here? Is while that may address the one small issue or, or problem that you're running into, if it's an OS level change, they've now introduced dozens of other things that now you have to learn because they're going to be different than what you already know. No. Yep. So instead yep. of instead of fixing one problem, they've now created a dozen more because now there's all these other things you have to go figure out. Yep. There there were times when I was living in New Zealand, away from old friends and family, and I was thinking, oh, I really do, I sh I should just move. The, the, this is too difficult. For example, that's also occurred in other places when I've moved. But when you, in most cases, when you move from A to B. You may be fixing some problems, but you'll just have different problems when you get there. It, 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 that's very general, but I, I, I've felt what you just said before myself. When exactly did you go from simply being a user of FreeBSD to then becoming more involved in the project itself? I think technically it would have been a, a commit bit in the ports project, in, in the ports tree. Now, I don't actually remember. When, oh, yeah. It, it was in 2014. It was August 12th. I looked this up. I added myself to the committers-ports.file. So that was my first commit. But some people would argue it actually started earlier. When did BSD CAN start? 2014? No, couldn't have I, been. I, I don't know off the top of my Just head. Just a second. Let me look this up. BSD CAN started in 2004. So 1998, I was still living in New Zealand. 2001, I moved back to Ottawa. I was hanging around with some uh, Linux people in town, one of whom ran the Linux kernel summit in Ottawa. And I get the idea from him that if he could run that, I could run a conference in Ottawa. And thankfully, I was unemployed at the time, thanks to the dot-com bubble bursting. So 
I ran BST Can in, in in May or June of 2004, and that was probably my first significant contribution. And people, on, I know I'm I know I'm being self uh, bragging, but people underestimate the non developer contributions to a project, and foremost amongst that is the stuff that developers don't usually do. Now, I know a lot of your BSD CAN uh, organizers are developers, but documentation, uh, bug triage, even just attempting to reproduce a problem described in a ticket or problem report, doing that means the developer doesn't have to do it and they can confirm that the problem exists and then just go straight on to, to testing or de debugging, sorry. But just because you can't code doesn't mean you cannot contribute to a project. I can code, but I haven't contributed code really unless you count ports tree work as coding, which some would count. Um, I, I did do a fix to the SCSI driver back when I started the, the Bacula project, started working on Bacula, but that was more of a tape spanning error. The SCSI driver didn't properly flush the queue or something. And someone found me the, the patch that needed and I submitted it, but it wasn't actually my code. So yeah, I, I would say the diary was my first contribution to the community. Uh, BSD CAN was my second. And I would say then ports commit is was the next one. Okay. Now, would you say that that was your first contribution to any open source project or had you had made contributions to other projects in the past? Yes. Um, in 2000, for the FreeBSD diary, I started working on the forum project, which is forum software, and I was maintaining the Postgres code. Um, and I did a little bit of stuff on the Mantis bug tracking system, but that was just mostly suggestions. Here, try this, try that. In 2004, I started working with the Bacula project and tapes, and I, w I was so close to deploying Amanda when someone he said, here, tr try Bacula. Um, now, that was the same year I started BSC CAN, um, and what I did mostly for the Bacula project was two things. Uh, one, I, I developed the um, first Postgres driver, which was just based on the MySQL driver. And I created a proof of concept for client-side encryption. And all it did was a ROT13 type thing just to prove that you could do something at the client, uh, encrypt, and, and get a back fine. Um, and then someone took it and implemented it with OpenSSL. Um, that, yeah. That that were that was my other contributions, and there's other stuff I contribute to since then. But those were the other ones before BSC. Speaking on the on the point of non uh, development contributions, I know that you know, I talk to people all the time, and there's obviously a lot of hesitation for people to get involved and to, to do small things because they fear that because it's not code, it won't be appreciated. So I was wondering if you could speak to when you made the the contributions to the FreeBSD community, what your experience was in the reception of that by the people who were already in the project? I can't remember. Let me think. So you're asking, do I remember the response to stuff that I contributed? I, I remember when I 
when I came up with the scuzzy bug, someone said, oh, I'm, I'm pre it might have been Ken, and I can't remember Ken's last name. Ken Ken has long been known as the, the scuzzy person. And I, I seem to recall, and it's in the mailing list archives, I seem to recall them saying, oh, that's what's happening. And what this bug allowed you to do is to have, say, a tarball that spanned multiple tapes. And apparently no one had tried that before, or no one had read back to see that, oh, you're missing data because it just got dropped on the floor instead of actually, uh, instead of you being told, hey, listen, uh, this is full. So I don't recall anything negative, and I certainly would have remembered something negative. Um, I still remember trying to get help on IRC on an unnamed channel on an unnamed network where I came back the next day and some, someone said, oh, look, it's Dan, and he hasn't learned anything yet because I was asking the same question from yesterday. Don't be assholes, people. Yeah. I assume that BSD Ken, when you ran that the yes. first time, was well-received. And I remember going up to the podium at the closing session and getting lots and lots of applause and becoming very emotional about it. And it wasn't so much the applause as the relief, as the relief that it was all over. And yeah, I shed tears at that closing session and it still is a great relief when the conference is over and everything has gone well. Pe people tell you, oh, it went so well. You're such a great organizer. And you actually have no idea about how to organize a conference because it's just your first one. And it's just that everything went well. You figured out what should be done and did it. And that's about it. People don't see all the mistakes that actually happened and the things that you're worried about that did happen. But the key point is... If people don't notice the things that went wrong, they think it went well. So don't be afraid to do it. Yeah, I've been uh, conference staff for Southeast Linux X for a few years. And just just being staff, I've been able to see some of the gremlins that exist behind the scenes that as a conference goer, you never you never see to. And Jeremy, the guy who's run it, I mean, he's run it for, I think, over a decade at this point. So he's got it mm. pretty well streamlined. Uh, he said to me once, you know, when the attendees don't notice the problems, yeah. I'm doing my job right. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's kind of always stuck with me. I agree with that. Problems arise and not letting the, the users see it or whatever is the main thing. And that, that applies to software. It applies to conferences. It, it, it applies to interactions with the public, all of that. So, yes, it, it, it's not necessarily that a problem occurred. It's how you dealt with it and how you resolved it. That's the important thing. So looking at BSD and just larger open source, are there things that you are seeing being developed or being improved that really get you excited for what we're going to have the capability to do in the future? I was really happy when the Z uh, ZFS on Linux project started. I was so pleased that they would finally get a really good file system. Now, some Linux advocates are going to be listening to me and say, what the hell are you talking about? We have great file systems. You didn't have ZFS. And now that you've got ZFS, you're going to see how great it is and hopefully see, agree with me that it is good to have and you will start using it. Um, I, I was just so pleased that, that now they're going, going to get what FreeBSD has had for, what, 10 years now? I think I've been using ZFS for 10 years. And... That, that to me, in, in the past four or five years, has been the, the biggest 
thing that that I can think of in terms of open source. I wish that there was a way to convince Oracle to reconsider the the mm -hmm. license because I know that there's a lot of people on the Linux side that will get hung up on that point mm -hmm. alone. And it won't matter how great of a file system it is. That's going to be the, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to cross that line. Yep. Uh, Oracle has done a lot of stuff. Um, I, I remember using MySQL and liking it and then abandoning it for Postgres. But since then, Oracle has acquired MySQL and I, I'm not really happy with it. Um, it's even less reasons for me to use it because of some of the licensing things they've done with it. I'm still happy to use ZFS, though. The license doesn't seem to have any issues with FreeBSD. So I'm very grateful that we're able to use it and they continue to do the development on it. Um, uh, people are probably unaware of this outside ZFS communities, but Oracle still contributes a lot to ZFS, even if it is uh, used internally. They're still contributing to open ZFS. That's good. I know there are some differences in some things. Like I know the encryption stuff is a little different uh, because when I've been looking into trying to do some encryption stuff on ZFS, I kind of always have to remember to find the posts in the open ZFS um, site versus, you know, the first link that comes up is an Oracle one and there is a, they aren't, the parity yeah. isn't there. There's not a one-to-one. On all the options. Um, I follow uh, the ZFS subreddit and almost all the questions in there, I'm sure, are from Linux users. And uh, I'm hesitant to answer or help out unless it's something that's pretty universal. When they're talking about how to, how to set it up and get it going, I don't want to cloud their views because, for example... It's always been habit on FreeBSD to give ZFS a partition, not the whole disk. And I think part of that is geom related. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I may be wrong here, but I don't know if you can have the same results if you if you give ZFS a whole disk. Someone someone back me up and or correct me because I, I I'm I'm weak in this area. What advice would you give to people who are considering a career in tech as far as how to proceed? Or to phrase that in a, in a different way, what were some of the things that you wish you had known before getting involved that obviously you know now? I think it's more a people thing. I think it's more along the lines of don't get so upset at people proposing changes for example, if someone's leaving the project or there's been a big change in the project and it's going to be what you think is totally different, it's it's human nature to start thinking about what this means for the project and what's going to go on. And I've seen so much worry and energy di diverted away from from actual work towards discussion about, you know, this is horrible. This is a bad idea. Don't do this. Um, a lot of things happen that are not under your control. You can't change them. Just either accept it or walk away from the project. A lot of us are ju just users or contributors, and the decisions are made at a totally different lo level. And that applies both to open source and to your working career. There will be decisions made by your managers and their managers and so on and so forth 
that to you, they just sound, this is ridiculous. Why would anyone decide to do this? Well, sometimes decisions are made based on knowledge that isn't public. And it may just be personal preferences, but you might see, you might think it's unfair. And that's just how it goes. Work is not there for you to have fun. If you can have fun with work, that's great. But you're paid to do a job and you've got to do as you're requested to do in your job. That's why outside interests are so important. Don't make work more than the nine to five routine. Make sure that you have outside interests. Um, you're working in order to do the outside interests, not living in order to do the work. Don't take it personally. Be ready to leave work at work and have activities outside work. That's very important. And the other thing is, when you finish education or training, you'll think, this is it. I've got it. I can do this. The training was there to help you learn how to solve problems. Training and learning isn't over yet. That's going to continue all the way through. I'm still learning after having graduated with a degree in 85. So I learned stuff this morning that I didn't know yesterday. And that happens every day. I'm learning just new things about little things that I really had never considered before. So don't sweat the little things. Live for your activities outside work and don't take it personally. Did I double up on that? I don't know. Yeah, if you did, that's fine. The learning thing is is interesting for me because I, I know when I first started getting interested in technology, you know, back, I mean, I'm not that old, but I had a, I had a conception in my head that there was a possibility that you could understand everything that was going on. Now, obviously, that wasn't true then. It's definitely not true now because with the rate of advancement that is happening these days, more knowledge is being created at such a rate mm -hmm. that there's no way you can even know all the classifications mm -hmm. of all the things you need to know, let alone know all the things in all those sections. It, it reminds me of how it's impossible to watch all the video on YouTube because it's being created faster than there are hours in the day, for example. It, it, it reminded me of that. Um, I used to think specialty was what I'm doing, but I'm really a generalist. I, I specialize in IT, but I have a wide variety of, of uh, expertise in, in different areas of IT. Some, th some aspects of IT I know nothing about, nothing at all, and I can't help you there. But ask me about packages or getting stuff installed or configured. And like I said before, if I don't immediately know the answer, I know where to get the answer. Um, so I had a question for you about the sort of evolution of, of programming and programmers. When I've spoken with Mad Dog, John Hall, before, he mentioned that back when he first got involved in programming, programming wasn't necessarily a profession. You had whatever your career field was, and you would be doing programming that you needed in your career field because your company needed the software or whatever. There weren't companies that were just making software and you were buying it in a shrink rack box. And then that shifted to then large companies writing software in shrink rack boxes. Uh, and then, of course, with the explosion of open source, that's shifted again to now where we have a split between the corporate software that's being developed and then 
just all the open source projects where regular people are chipping in and helping out in the little areas that they can. Do you think that trend will continue and or do you think that there may be a regression and we go back to the kind of siloed development? I distinctly remember people coming from physics backgrounds. I remember working for the National Research Council as a summer job at the high-speed wind tunnel outside of Ottawa. And that was filled with aeronautical engineers who were doing programming because they were the ones that, that knew what they needed to do in terms of the code. And so my summer job was to take their data and create a plot so they could see what the data represented. And it was some sort of code that uh, analyzed the um, analyzed the aerodynamics around a pylon and a store attached to the pylon. And the reason they needed this graphical output was because sometimes the data had the store mounted five feet below the pylon. So it's not actually attached to the aircraft. So I wrote this program called AVs. I called it AVs because it's sort of related to avian and bird and air and planes and stuff. So that was a case where I have no experience with aeronautics and I'm gathering the information from them. So that that's a case of a, a specialized uh, person coming in, granted, university student, but coming in and getting the information they need to do the job. And that that's what I've done most of my uh, programming career is learned information about other industries and used it to create the code they needed. I, I see there will always be a market for closed source software. I use closed, soft, closed source software all the time. There, I can't see the market for that going away. I also cannot see the market for open source software going away because someone personally needs to solve a problem. They write the code, they put it out there, and, oh, I have users. Holy shit, other people are using this? Oh, that's interesting. And then they start giving you feedback and bug reports and stuff like that. And anyone can go ahead and, and use this code. And it was just something for me because I needed this problem solved. And it turns out that other people can use it too. So getting back to the question, I don't, I don't see proprietary source code going away. I don't see proprietary software going away. I don't see open source going away, but I do see more people getting involved with open source software in their spare time. For some of those folks, it'll eventually become a career. For some people, their whole career will be based around open source software because their first job will be open source software. Um, I don't see other one going away. I see them existing hand in hand. Uh, I see businesses being built on both. Um, and I don't see any downsides for any of it. Um, and that's coming from someone who has used closed source tools uh, in their day-to-day -day career for the first half of their career. And then the second half of their career, a whole lot of open source stuff came in. And I'm using them side by side. And use whatever tools you like to use and you'll have a better time. Yeah, and on the business front, I mean, obviously back in the in the 90s and early 2000s, there was 
I would even go so far as to say there was some hostility yeah. uh, towards open source from major corporations. But yes. as we see now, there's a lot of major corporations that are totally on board with open source mm -hmm. because they realize the benefit that it brings them. I mean, specifically with the FreeBSD project, of course, there's there's Sony and there's Netflix, which come to mind. Mm -hmm. And it's really great to see that major corporations realize that open source is not a problem that they need to deal with. It's actually an advantage. There is some... I can think of some projects in the news recently where they have underestimated how important their software was to the community, and they've sort of made some decisions with uh, with the license that has really pissed off the community. What happens there? A fork. Forks are not, not usually good. Uh, forks usually arise out of some concern or unmet need, but generally... It's a good idea to keep your community involved and active and contributing and paying attention to the importance of that open source community in your business because your business isn't the software. It's the money you make off the software. And the software is has contributions coming in from the public. And if you start pissing them off, those contributions will stop and if open source software is vital to your business, you've really got to embrace open source software and the values and um, standards that come with that. So speaking of of that point and uh, the community view, when you were getting involved in FreeBSD and open source, were there individuals who kind of helped shape your views of open source or inspired you in work that you were doing? I've long held that as you gain knowledge, you forget what it was like not to know. And I often see documentation, man pages, and blog posts written from the point of view of what you know now and not what you didn't know before you gained this knowledge. You've really got to give people practical examples on how to do something. A man page with no examples, to me, that's just so difficult to use. Just give me one example using the basic parameters that your tool needs. Make sure that it works, and then I can go from there. If I just can't get your tool to work, what use is the man page to me? I just need an example to get me started, something that I know works, and from there I can start tweaking the inputs and the parameters and stuff like that. But if I can't get it to work, that's your problem. It's not the fault of the user if they cannot get just the basics going. Now, where this came from is I mentioned having trouble getting DHCP working, and I knew what an IP address was. I knew a little bit about networking, but I didn't know enough to know how to get DHCP working and how to get an IP address on my on my um, FreeBSD box. I could get it on the Windows NT box. I could connect that in and it, it would get an IP address. But I didn't know how to do that with my FreeBSD box. So I was on IRC. Uh, I, I was on both Undernet and Fnet, and I went into Fnet one day to get help with something unrelated to DHCP, but something where I had overwritten Etsy FSTAB in the system. And so this guy was helping me, 
And he said, oh, show me the contents of this file. And I showed him the contents of etcf stab. And it contained stuff that really wasn't what my drives were related to. And I remember the guy said, yep, you screwed the pooch on that one. And I said, oh. And so I said, here's what it should have. And showed me what it should have. And boom, my system was up and running. Turned out the guy was Jordan Hubbard. So here's a guy that's been using the system for a long time, contributed for, for a long time, and he's helping a complete novice. So Jordan and Jay probably don't realize the effect that they had on the FreeBSD community way back then. Without them, the following things would not exist. BSD can would not exist. PGCon would not exist. The FreeBSD diary would not exist. Um, all the ports that I've contributed would not exist. All the work that was discussed at those conferences probably wouldn't have happened. They may have happened somewhere else. But do not underestimate the value that can come from bringing new people into the project. They might not contribute as much as others have, but they will help. You, you, a project cannot be sustained without new people coming in. And always keep that in mind. Don't look down on newbies. The, the attitude of some people on the net and uh, on mailing lists and stuff, it's improved greatly over the past few years. But in terms of mocking newbies and mocking other software and um, just basically, if you cannot advocate for your own project with out pointing out the deficiencies in other projects, then there's something wrong with your project. Your project should be able to stand alone on its merits, and there's no need to ridicule anything else. Yeah, and another thing that's important to remember is, you know, if, if it's IRC or it's a forum or a mailing list, by the time somebody actually gets to the point of typing in what they're having a problem with, they have already had a bad day. And what they're looking for is someone to help them. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, like you said, you don't know what possible knock-on effects are going to come downstream of helping that person. Mm -hmm. So it's always important to remember that this person's having a bad day. Mm -hmm. If they don't know something that I think they should, it's better on me to help educate them yep. than to mock them for not knowing what yep. they obviously don't know. Um, early in the, in the early days of fresh ports, I knew nothing about ports. I was doing this before I was a ports maintainer. And I spent all kinds of time asking people about, well, why does this happen? And why does that happen? And how can I extract this information? And there were a lot of very tolerant people helping me figure out how to, how to run make minus V on a port and pull this information out. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I can do the work, but I can't get all the information I need without asking questions. Right. So to, to wrap this interview up, I know a lot of open source people talk about their kind of aha moment where, you know, they may have been using it for a while, but there was a, a, an event or a series of events where they realized, oh, wow, I get it now. All of the things that I can do with this. D do you have kind of a moment in mind or a series of events that was that for you? Yep. Um, after I got that 486 online. It was acting as my firewall. ADSL was just starting up and there's no mailing list. So I used, I'm pretty sure it was Major Domo to create the New Zealand ADSL mailing list. And I installed Apache to, to handle the archives and the sign up and stuff. And I was, was sitting alone in my house one night, realizing that 
over there on this computer is a web server that anyone in the world on the internet can access. I was thinking, holy shit, I can, I can run a web server. And it, it's just, it all went from that. It was just sort of, wow, that that was the moment. Yeah, there's one thing that I've I've mentioned before when I've been talking to other people is one of the things I love most about open source is that the thing limiting me is me mm -hmm. because the information is out there. If I have the drive, I can take what someone else has worked on. If I need to build on it, I can but that at the end of the day, the largest thing that's going to limit mm -hmm. what I can do is me mm -hmm. not putting forth the effort because all of the other gatekeepers have come, they've gone away because mm -hmm. it's all open. It's all out there. I yep. can get access to it. There's, there's more open source software projects out there than you could ever list. There's just an abundance uh, of, of projects and ways to solve things and multiple ways to solve the same problem. And if you can't find a decent solution for what you need, you can write it. Yeah. And in a way, it, it harkens back to just the basic scientific method of we can all try all these different techniques, mm -hmm. all these different methods. And then through that, find out what works best, what techniques mm -hmm. are, are more efficient, what what techniques are a better way to solve problems. It's it's that uh, it's back to the problem solving skills that you learned in high school and being able to try something and fail and try something and fail and not being discouraged by the failure, but knowing that that's not the right approach. Let's try a different one. Yep. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today and chat. I've, I've really appreciated it. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. <laughs>